Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh my gosh. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and uh, I see Matthew Stockton sitting over there, who seems to be over the lurgy. Yes. You're not coughing every 10 seconds. And I'm not. Blowing out my ears. That took a few weeks. Oh my gosh, you were sick for a while. Which never happens. No, no. Never. No, you don't usually get sick at all. No. And it wasn't the Rona. Podorona. Podorona. <laughs> anyway, we're back at her. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. November 18, 1987, Jay Cook, 20, and Tanya Van Kylenberg, 18, a young couple from Vancouver Island, went on a road trip to Seattle, Washington. Unfortunately, they were never seen alive again. Their bodies were discovered weeks later in separate locations. Tanya had been raped, shot, and left in a ditch in Skagit County, Washington, and Jay was found strangled in the woods near Monroe, about 60 miles away. The case went unsolved for over three decades until 2018 when authorities were able to use genetic genealogy to identify a suspect. He was arrested and charged with the murders. The man pleaded not guilty. In 2021, after his trial, the man was the first to be convicted using genetic genealogy. The couple's killer was subsequently sentenced to life behind bars. As things go, this story didn't end there. This is Dark Poutine episode 268, Long time gone. The murders of Tanya Van Kylenberg and Jay Cook. Tanya Van Kylenberg was the youngest child and only daughter born to Willem, Bill, and Jean Van Kylenberg. She entered the world on 7th of March, 1969, and her family was ecstatic. Tanya's parents were well off. Willem was born in the Netherlands, 
and was an established lawyer, and the family had later settled in Saanich on Vancouver Island. Saanich boasts a varied population encompassing a broad spectrum of income levels. Although certain upscale regions, such as Cordova Bay and Ten Mile Point, exist in Saanich, the average household income in the area is approximately $70,000. With about half of that going to grocery bills right now. Yeah, exactly. It's like $400 for a loaf of bread. <laughs> Sanity. Oh, my. For thousands of years, Saanich has been the traditional territory of the Lekwungen peoples, also known as the Songhees and Esquimalt nations, the Malahat nation, and the Saanich peoples. These indigenous peoples have deep connections to the land and their traditions continue. Non-indigenous history in the area began with the arrival of the Hudson's Bay Company in the 1840s. The Craigflower Schoolhouse, which is the oldest surviving school building in Western Canada, was constructed in Saanich on orders from Kenneth Mackenzie. Mackenzie arrived from Scotland with his family in 1852 on the Hudson's Bay Company ship Norman Morrison to establish a farm for the Puget Sound Agricultural Company, a subsidiary of the Hudson's Bay Company. A school was needed for the children of farm employees as well as those of arriving settlers. The municipality of Saanich was incorporated on March 1, 1906. Saanich has a long shoreline with sandy beaches at several ocean bays, including Cadborough Bay Beach and Cordova Bay Beach. The district is also known for its many beautiful parks, such as Mount Douglas Park, Mount Tolmy Park, which boasts stunning viewpoints, and Gyro Park. Cadborough Bay is supposedly home to the mystical cryptid known as the Cadborosaurus or Cadborosaurus Wilsey, nicknamed Caddy, which is described as a long serpent-like beast with flippers, hair on the neck, and a camel-like head. It could be anywhere from 40 to 70 feet long, and there have been more than 300 claimed sightings in the last 80 years. That aside, Saanich was an excellent place for Tanya Van Kylenberg and her older brother John to grow up. <laughs> I love how you go from 70-foot cryptid to great place to grow up. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> I don't know if anybody has ever actually been near a 70-foot cryptid because I don't think it really exists. You're a doubter. I, I'm a doubting Thomas. There is no Cadborosaurus, even though I kind of like that. Cadborosaurus? Uh, yeah. They should make one out of chocolate. Exactly. A Cadbury source. <laughs> According to Edward Hume's book, The Forever Witness, Tanya Van Kylenberg was a free-spirited and rebellious young woman known for her sharp wit and sense of humor. She was never one to follow the pack, and her childhood friend, Stephanie Crone, remembers her as the ringleader of their group. They would often spend hours people-watching and Tanya's talent for making up fictional biographies and witty internal dialogues for passers-by always had them in stitches. Despite being the life of the party, Tanya was also athletic and excelled at both varsity basketball and tennis. Her father had built a tennis court on their property when she was a child, and she spent many hours practicing on it, often playing with her dad. She didn't dress flashy, often choosing comfort, over fashion. Tanya was sporty and had a deep love of the outdoors. Her rebellious streak grew more pronounced in high school, where Tanya's peers dressed in dresses and suits for graduation. 
Tanya refused to conform. She told her friend Mae Robson that she did not want to wear a dress to her graduation. Instead, she showed up in an unforgettable tuxedo off the men's rack, complete with a black jacket and pants, a white shirt, and an emerald green bow tie around her neck. And this was the spirit of Tanya Van Kylenberg. She would have been the same age that we are now. It, yeah. Right, so we were in high school when she was in high school. Yes. Different parts of the country. Yep. I think these days, sort of dressing differently is a bit more par for the course. Right. I don't have kids, I wouldn't know, but you know, back in the 80s, you know, that would have been more of a statement. Mm -hmm. But looking back at my high school days, you know, what I wore, I think it was primarily a means of self-expression and sort of the joy of creativity. Sure. But it was seen as weird and very rebellious. Well, right today, mm. this year, I just read an article about a person in the United States. She wanted to wear a tuxedo to her prom and was refused entry. And so some local small businesses decided later to hold a prom again that she would be able to oh, nice. attend wearing the tuxedo that she had. People are so close-minded. Well, yeah, there's a lot of that right now. So I'm looking at pictures of Tanya. Yeah. Who's same age as us. Yep. And a, a few, few pictures, she has kind of a cool new wavy haircut yep she's got that hair and yeah. i'm like i wonder if she was in a room listening to depeche mode or pet shop boys the same time i was you know yeah she had a, a apparently a great love of music and uh yeah. always had like mixtapes and cool. that kind of thing so i would have hung with tanya yeah i think i would have too <laughs> despite her bold approach to life tanya was also responsible and hardworking. she worked as a server at pickwick's restaurant now gone and when younger, she'd had her own dog walking business. This facilitated the care of her own dog, Tessa, a golden retriever whom Tanya loved dearly and also helped her to purchase her bright red Yamaha Beluga motor scooter. She was also creative and loved photography, shooting roll after roll of film with her prize camera, a 35mm Minolta X700. Tanya was taking a year off before returning to school but had no definite plans. However, she did want to return to Europe, specifically the Netherlands, to see relatives, having visited after her graduation with her pal Mae Robson. That summer, in July of 1987, Tanya met and fell for good-looking, more than six-foot-tall, lanky, long-haired young man named Jay Cook. Jay Roland Cook grew up in nearby Oak Bay. Oak Bay is a municipality on Vancouver Island recognized for its affluence with a medium household income exceeding $100,000 Canadian. The area is famous for its extravagant real estate and the reputation of having some of the most expensive homes in the country. Additionally, Oak Bay is renowned for its large historic houses and perfectly groomed gardens. Oak Bay, situated on the eastern shore of Vancouver Island, was historically a part of the traditional territories of the Coast Salish people of the Songhees First Nation. Evidence of their ancient settlements, including an ancient seaport at Willows Beach, has been found. Scientists have determined that the ancient port was destroyed by a great tsunami in 930 AD. Additionally, much of Oak Bay was built on an indigenous burial ground. The municipality takes its name from the Gary Oak Tree, found throughout the region, and a large bay that fronts Willows Beach. Oak Bay was initially developed as a middle-class streetcar suburb of Victoria and was incorporated as a municipality in 1906. The first council included Francis Rattenbury, the architect who designed the legislative buildings and the Empress Hotel located on the Inner Harbor in Victoria. 
1912, the former farmlands of the Hudson's Bay Company were subdivided to create the uplands area, but the outbreak of World War I hampered development. After the war, the development of expensive homes in the uplands was accompanied by the construction of many more single-family dwellings in the Estevan, Willows, and South Oak Bay neighborhoods. The Victoria Golf Club, founded in 1893, is located in South Oak Bay and is the second oldest golf course west of the Great Lakes. It claims to be the oldest golf course in Canada still on its original site and is situated on a 6,120-yard Lynx course on the ocean side. The course is rumored to be haunted by the ghost of Doris Gravelin, a young nurse murdered on the 7th Fairway in 1936. Doris was accompanied by her estranged husband, Victor Gravelin, who was known to be a hard-drinking journalist prone to fits of anger. Doris's beaten and strangled body was discovered five days later and Victor's corpse washed up on the shores of the golf club a month later. The case was closed as a murder-suicide, but locals remain skeptical. Drivers along Beach Drive have reported sudden cold winds and ghostly figures dressed in white floating above the road, warning of the restless spirit of Doris Gravelin. Today, Oak Bay is a desirable place to live for those who value high quality of life and a strong sense of community. It's a place that attracts those who appreciate the finer things in life and value a high quality of living. The Cooks were a family like that. Born on 16th of December, 1966 to Lee and Gordon Cook, Jay was sandwiched between two sisters. Both Lee and Gordon were hardworking. Lee was a cook at the University of Victoria and Gordon ran a successful heating business. They instilled the same work ethic in their children and the kids were expected to pull their weight around the home and eventually to help out with the family business when needed. From The Forever Witness by Edward Humes, quote, J. Roland Cook, with his infectious crooked smile and laid-back demeanor, was Tanya's opposite in many ways, quiet, even-tempered, the one person at a rowdy party most likely to calm a disagreement rather than spark one. In a group setting, he would sit and listen and say hardly a thing for most of the night. But then some inner switch would flip and he'd take center stage, telling story after story, a stand-up comic, seizing the spotlight and shedding his shyness like an overcoat, end quote. Hume's book continued describing Jay Cook as a person with many qualities. He could be responsible and astute, yet also clueless and irresponsible at times. Despite this, he had a reputation for being an attentive, generous friend and family member. Sometimes responsible and astute, sometimes clueless and irresponsible. Sounds like someone I know. Me? No, that would be me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am well known for, you know, I'm not a dumb person, but sometimes do the most ridiculous things. Ah, uh, me too. <laughs> Yeah, I think we are birds of a feather in that regard, Matthew. <laughs> Jay could quickly recognize when something was amiss, such as at a party, when he noticed his friend exhibiting concerning behavior due to acute alcohol poisoning. In response, he immediately took action, boring his dad's truck and driving the teenager to the nearest emergency room, potentially saving the young man's life. On another occasion, Jay thoughtfully planned a surprise afternoon tea outing for his sister, paying attention to every detail of the experience. However, he also had moments of forgetfulness and clumsiness, as seen when he lost his jacket and one of his shoes during another family outing. During the autumn of 1987, like Tanya, Jay was still contemplating his career path. 
He had taken up several part-time jobs, such as working at a pizza establishment, briefly assisting on a commercial fishing vessel, and naturally working for his dad's heating company. The fateful trip taken by Tanya and Jay into the States in November 1987 was to acquire replacement furnace parts for a local family that Gordon Cook was hired to install before the winter set in. As the furnace wasn't available locally, Gordon asked Jay to do the pickup at Jensco Heating's branch in Seattle using Gordon's van, a bronze 1977 Ford club wagon. Jay asked Tanya to tag along. It would be a quick trip, he said. They would be back by the following evening, and Tanya agreed to come along. Jay packed bedding into the back of the van, and this included blankets and two green foam bedrolls, along with road maps, instructions, and directions from his dad, $300 in traveler's checks, and the cashier's check for $758.11 in U.S. dollars made out to Jensco Heating. Tanya packed her backpack with a single change of clothes, toiletries, and makeup, about $60 Canadian, and her ever-present camera and telephoto lens. They planned to buy food and drinks on the road, but otherwise they had all they needed for the overnight round trip. They set off in the late afternoon of November 18, 1987, taking the MV Coho, a passenger ferry between Victoria, British Columbia, and Port Angeles, Washington in the U.S. The ferry service operates between Port Angeles and Victoria, making between two and four round trips daily. The distance covered during the crossing is about 37 kilometers or 20 nautical miles, and the trip lasts about 90 minutes. During the peak summer season, the ferry makes the most daily trips. During the winter, the frequency of trips is lower. Jay and Tanya arrived in Port Angeles at 4 p.m., and unlike the hike down the I-5, a straight shot from the border in White Rock, the trip to Seattle from Port Angeles is a series of twists and turns my mom would call the scenic route. This was the course that Jay and Tanya were taking. Jay was unfamiliar with the drive, and there were only paper road maps and signs to go by in 1987, so chances of missing a turn were high. Sure enough, Jay missed a turn, which took the couple far out of the way. So we, we've done that drive together. We went down to meet some listeners in Seattle. That's right. And remember there was like some sort of accident, a major backlog, so we had to take a side road? Yeah. Imagine you and I with a bloody paper map trying to figure that out. <laughs> no, that would have been ridiculous. <laughs> Luckily, we had the old, what do you call it, wazoo? Waze. Waze. W-A-Z. We had the Waze. And we're going yeah. through this, like, you know, um, sort of a residential section. You're like, turning right, turning left, turning right, turning left. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun trip. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've never done the drive that they did from Port Angeles down through the peninsula and all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm lucky. <laughs> sounds much more complicated. But I, I don't know. It sounds uh, kind of fun. Like, I've driven down it through that area. I've just never taken the ferry from Vancouver Island to Port Angeles. Mm. I've done sort of the drive around that area, but never. Right. It is twisty and turny. Yeah. But I can't imagine someone like, you know, you're 20 and your girlfriend is 18 and you're just having a great old time and you miss you miss turns because... Of course, because you remember using... You don't have Alexa or whoever remember telling paper you... Remember maps? Yes, I remember them right? very and you, well. You'd like, somebody would be, the co-pilot would be there with a finger on the, where you are, right? So, exactly. And like trying to follow it. Okay, we're at this road now. Yeah, yeah. or you just forget. Start talking and it's like, oh, yeah. right? We've been going a really long, I, I have said oh, this. Oh, yeah. We've, We've been, been going, going a really long time. <laughs> I think we should have turned somewhere. Yep. <laughs> oh, well. Hilarious. 
The couple stopped at a convenience store in Hoodsport, Washington at around 8.30 p.m. to ask directions and learned just how far off course they were. They bought some road treats, candy, chips, and soda and headed on their way. Almost immediately after leaving the store, Tanya returned to ask for a receipt. They were supposed to track their expenses for the business-related trip, and she'd forgotten it. The clerk at the store also noticed another man wearing a brown raincoat in the store at the same time as Tanya and Jay. They didn't interact. The man left almost immediately after the young couple. It is unclear whether this person was connected to Jay and Tanya in any way, although another couple said they'd seen the van near the store and it appeared Tanya was talking to someone unseen behind her in the van. Had they picked up a hitchhiker? No one has come forward to confirm that suspicion. Thirty miles after Hoodsport, Tanya and Jay pulled into Ben's Deli in Allen to ask directions again. Looking frazzled and tired, they wanted to ensure they were on the right track. They were. After they'd gone, the clerk noticed that Jay had left three of his $50 traveler's checks behind on the counter, but the couple was long gone. The clerk put the checks aside, hoping the lovely young couple would return to retrieve them, but they never did. Jay and Tanya arrived at the Bremerton Ferry Terminal and were able to purchase a ticket that was time-stamped at 10.16 p.m., just in time for the last ferry out. The ferry departed nine minutes later, and the one-hour crossing would have taken them to the Seattle waterfront by 11.30 p.m. It's unclear whether Tanya and Jay were on the ferry at all, as there were no definitive sightings of them on board. They did not arrive at Gensco Heating to pick up the furnace as scheduled on the morning of November 19, 1987. The couple had disappeared. More after a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back, Matthew. Your thoughts so far? I think uh, these sort of cases hit hard mm -hmm. because you have two young people in a situation like a short road trip that's yeah. really relatable to us. Yeah, you know, this is like something everyone's done. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's like let's go together and pick something up, right? Yep. Just it'll be like a day trip or overnight. Going to do something for dad, right? It's yep. just this normal thing, and I think that's why. You know, a, a case like this sort of hits because you can place yourself there. Yeah. And these two young people, you know, the way you describe them, like, I get them, right? Mm -hmm. I get them. They're nice people, right? Yeah. They're just nice kids. Yeah. Ordinary, everyday kids who are doing nothing to nobody. And they're, they're both actually like hard workers, school. Whole lives things, ahead of them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and it's... Sad because she was the same age as us and she hasn't had this opportunity to live no. the lives we've lived. She know? hasn't had so a life. Sad. And neither is he. He's a couple of years older than we were. Yeah. yeah. Tanya's friend, Mae Robson, called for Tanya the following evening. Her father answered, concerned and wondering where Tanya was. Mae had no idea. As far as she knew, Tanya and Jay were supposed to be back. 
Tanya was not someone to disappear. She always called when she was going to be late. Always. According to Edward Hume's book, The Forever Witness, Tanya had asked May to come along on the trip to Seattle, saying she was mildly apprehensive about being alone with Jay in the van overnight, but May had refused. May Robson later pondered whether things would have gone differently had she been along for the trip. Would Jay and Tanya still be alive today? Or would she be gone too? Jay's parents, Gordon and Lee, were not as concerned initially. They assumed that Jay and Tanya were having fun and perhaps would arrive in the middle of the night, or maybe they'd crashed at a motel overnight. However, they began to worry when there was no sign of Jay the following day. The two sets of parents, who until this point had never met, got together to talk and try to figure out what had happened to Tanya and Jay. The next day, they were still waiting for word from either of them. Bill Van Kylenberg, too distracted to work, called the Saanich police to report Tanya missing. Bill and another family member left that afternoon to retrace the couple's planned route in the hope of finding them. Bill promised Gene he'd find Tanya. He found the police in Washington State far from helpful and was waved away. They were a couple of young people, albeit adults, having a good time, Bill was told. They'd turn up soon, the cops said. In Seattle, the cops took him a little more seriously and issued a be on the lookout for the young couple to law enforcement entities in the state, especially along the couple's planned route to and from Seattle. The RCMP also became involved on the Canadian side. Bill had posters made up and began plastering them all over Washington. The posters had in bold letters, missing since November 18th, and below that, pictures of Tanya and Jay. Jay was wearing his graduation gown. It listed Tanya as having blonde hair, being 5 foot 10 inches tall, weighing 130 pounds, and was 18 years old. Jay, it said, had dark brown hair, was 6 foot 2 inches tall, and weighed 165 pounds and was 20 years old. They were driving a 1977 bronze Ford window van, BC license plates 9785MT, with contact information below, and a picture of Jay and Tanya standing in front of the van. Tanya doing the walk like the Egyptian pose. Every lead came up empty. There was no sign of Jay and Tanya. On November 24, 1987, came the first terrible discovery. Vic Wold was picking bottles to take for recycling near his home in Alger, Washington. Wold's bottle picking route took him along the roadsides and ditches of Skagit County, but he found something he had not seen before that morning. In a ditch in a wooded area off Parsons Creek Road between Old Highway 99 and Prairie Road, he saw what he believed at first to be the body of a man lying face up in a culvert. Brush had covered the person's face. Wold was horrified and went immediately to the nearest house and called the police. Police investigators found that it was a woman's body, naked from the waist down, clad in a flannel shirt and light jacket. Two plastic zip ties were discovered nearby. She wore a bra which was pushed up over her breasts, signs of sexual assault. The woman's hands were in a strange position, possibly due to rigor mortis, appearing as though she'd been bound at some point, perhaps by the zip ties. She had no ID, but was wearing some jewelry. One item was a silver ring on a necklace around her neck inscribed with the letter T. The woman had been shot point blank in the back of the head, execution style. As there was not a significant amount of blood at the scene, it was determined that whoever had shot the young woman, Jane Doe at this point, had to have done so elsewhere. Bill Van Kylenberg later positively identified the body as his daughter Tanya's. 
The same day as the discovery of Tanya's body, 14 miles north outside Essie's Tavern in Bellingham, Tanya Van Kylenberg's wallet was discovered along with her ID and a set of keys. Police were notified, and a crime scene was set up there to comb for more evidence. Investigators found more plastic zip ties like the ones found near Tanya's body. Also found were the note of directions Jay would use to get to Seattle, more pieces of Tanya's ID, her black purse, and the lens cap to her camera. Most telling was a pair of talcum-powdered surgical gloves and a box of 380 silver-tipped Winchester Western hollow-point bullets, the same kind that had killed Tanya Van Kylenberg. So where were Jay in the van? Those who didn't know Jay thought perhaps he had something to do with Tanya's murder. But those who knew him well felt that that was not even the remotest possibility. So if Tanya was dead, something terrible must have happened to Jay. The van was discovered the next day, abandoned in Whatcom County, in a blue diamond parking lot near State and Holly Streets in Bellingham, just blocks away and within sight of Essie's Tavern. The keys found at Essie's crime scene unlocked the van. Jay was not inside, but it appeared to have been ransacked. The contents of the couple's bags were strewn violently all over the van's interior. Among the items recovered were Tanya's passport, two pairs of panties, and a used tampon near the van's rear. There was blood on the passenger seat of the van, and a comforter in the back of the van on the green bedrolls was also soaked in blood. Inside the comforter were Tanya's black pants. A stain on one leg was determined to have been semen from an as-yet-unknown male. It did not belong to Jay Cook. There were also four more zip ties present, and although there were no fingerprints, there was a single palm print on the van's back door, perhaps made by the killer as he left the vehicle. According to the book The Forever Witness, the investigation team discovered a folder attached to the sun visor of the driver's side of the van. It contained valuable information about the route taken by Jay and Tanya from the Olympic Peninsula to Bremerton, Seattle. The folder had receipts of purchases made at the Hood Canal Grocery and Ben's Deli and a ferry ticket from Seattle time-stamped at 10.16 p.m. on the previous Wednesday. Additionally, the folder held three $50 Canadian traveler's checks and that $758.11 money order made out to Gensco for the furnace. On November 26, 1987, one day after the van was discovered, the body of Jay Cook was found near the Snoqualmie River, specifically along the Crescent Lake Road near Highbridge Road in Snohomish County. The location is approximately three-quarters of a mile west of the old Washington State Reformatory's honor farm near Monroe, and so much was made of his body being found close to the prison farm, so people thought that might be mm. indicative of who the suspect is. It wasn't. Where Tanya had been seemingly uninjured, save for the bullet wound that had instantly taken her life, Jay's body was in terrible shape. Jay had been beaten brutally, his face was bruised and battered, and his hair was bloody. A garrote made of twine and two red dog collars had been wrapped around his throat, leaving angry bruises. He'd been strangled. In addition, investigators found a soft pack of camel's light cigarettes in Jay's throat and a crumpled tissue. These things would have made it impossible for Jay to breathe, and it would have taken some time for him to die. Whoever did this is just a total animal. Well, he, the person was clearly angry at Jay for some reason. Police thought maybe it's a personal thing. Other investigators 
have surmised that perhaps the killer was angry that Jay represented the type of guy who could get a girl like Tanya. Or that he was trying to defend her. Defend her or himself, yeah. yeah. Yep. According to an article in the Times Colonist newspaper on November 29, 1987, Tanya's funeral was held at Uvix Interfaith Chapel, and it drew scores of her friends and relatives. One person among the mourners was Brian Smith, BC's Attorney General, a friend of Bill Van Kylenberg's. Smith said he was impressed with Bill Van Kylenberg's reaction to Tanya's murder. Quote, He wants justice, not revenge, said Smith. He wants to try to make the world a better place so there won't be any more tragedies like Tanya's, end quote. Jay's funeral, held later at the same venue, was similarly attended. During the Christmas holidays, which was just four weeks after the murders of Jay and Tanya, their families received a series of greeting cards that contained disturbing descriptions of the murders and taunting messages. The author claimed responsibility for the murders, and the postmarks on the cards showed that they were sent from New York, Los Angeles, and Seattle. The same person wrote all the cards, and at least six of them were mailed over three different holidays. Despite this, the authorities could not identify who sent the cards until much later, when a 78-year-old Canadian transient with mental health problems was identified as the sender of the cards in 2010. The man could not be charged with anything as the statute of limitations had run out. Regardless, it was a cruel thing to do and had sent police in the wrong direction, using essential resources that could have better served a real lead. Bill Van Kylenberg initially raised a $30,000 reward for information leading to the capture of Tanya and Jay's killer. Before a resolution came more than 30 years later, the reward had grown to $50,000, but Bill Van Kylenberg would not live to see it. He died in 1997 at the age of 61. His family said that Tanya's death had broken him. Bill was buried near Tanya in the Ross Bay Cemetery. The case was later profiled on the show Unsolved Mysteries. However, the families were concerned about the coverage as the show had gotten a few things wrong, including Tanya's age, and, and it said that the couple were high school sweethearts. Yeah, research is important. It is. I mean, that's why we did the redo of the Mark Twitchell yeah. thing, because my research wasn't as good. A show like Unsolved Mysteries, this piece would have been like, what, five minutes? Yeah. At best. And what's the amount of research that they're really going to put into doing that? They're probably going to read newspaper articles, maybe talk to the families. They did talk to the families, but they didn't ask the families the important questions. And the flip side of that, it's a, it was a very big show with probably lots of money coming in. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, this is just you and me. Right. So they could have maybe taken the time to do it a little better. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the situation We're inevitably going to get things wrong occasionally. This is why I say we're not journalists at the yeah. beginning of the show. And this is why I don't, I don't write sort of recent ones. Right. Right. Because I like, I'm like, <laughs> I feel too irresponsible. I leave that for you. Right? Well, sometimes the facts aren't really established yet. Yeah. There's a lot of assumption. If you read newspaper articles about a certain crime, the facts are all over the place. If you compare all the different news articles, they're all over the place. They are not usually congruent well, with that's, one another. Well, that's one thing I've noticed when I have done research for this is, especially over years, Mike, right? You can, you actually can see how the story changes yep. in the media over the years. Yeah. You actually watch this flow of information change. Yep. It's incredible. 
Yeah, it really is. And, and it's natural, right? As people find out more or they find out somebody is lying or new details come in. This is why I make sure to tell people I'm not a journalist. These aren't facts. This is, this is a narrative yeah. based on what my research has uncovered. Yeah. It is not necessarily the news. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, but at the same, at the same time, I think you do a very good job trying to get everything right. I try. For yeah. the victim. Yeah. Right. At the time, both families were quoted in an online article now preserved on the Unsolved Mysteries site. Bill Van Kylenberg said, quote, They certainly seemed to be good for each other from everything that I could gather. I certainly had no apprehension about Tanya being with Jay. I felt very comfortable with that. Bill continued, If Tanya was late for anything, she would always phone. So when Tanya did not phone the next evening, when they were supposed to be returning, my wife became apprehensive. So I tried to downplay it for my wife's sake and probably to reassure myself that everything would be okay. However, on the following day when she didn't call, we knew there was something wrong, end quote. The show generated tips on more than 200 persons of interest and the cops picked away at trying to determine if any of the leads were at all valuable. None led to an actual suspect. Police checked out the usual suspects in violent sexual assault cases, but there was no luck. Every lead they chased over the next three decades led nowhere. All the while, a suspected killer's DNA, found on Tanya's pants and one of the zip ties, was preserved and waited in evidence for technology to catch up. There was a moment in 1990 when the lens of Tanya's camera turned up in a Portland, Oregon pawn shop, but all attempts to trace back who'd initially traded the lens failed. It had changed hands several times since Tanya's death, and the body of her camera was never found. So cops were really, maybe this is a lead. That's, that's incredible. So how they discovered it was through the serial number that was attached to that lens. That so do you know, do pawn shops, when they have something brought in, do they like register the serial numbers and report things? Or, or were the police maybe looking and looking for the camera, right? Maybe the police were looking for something else. Okay. And Tanya's camera's serial number was already in a system. Right. And it was like, oh, bingo. Okay. Here's this thing. Okay. You know, that would be my assumption okay. at this point. Nine years after the crime in 1996, investigators produced a DNA fingerprint of the semen found on Tanya's pants. However, no matches were found despite monitoring databases in Washington, Oregon, and California. In 2003, the suspect's DNA was uploaded to the FBI's national and Canadian databases, but still no hits. Police suspected that the murderer may have been in the prison system before DNA was commonly used. Some states introduced cold case playing cards into prisons to generate new leads in 2005. In 2008, Tanya and Jay were featured on the King of Hearts in a deck sent to prisons and jails across Washington state. The hope was that the crimes on the cards would spark conversations and possibly lead to confessions. None came. In 2017, the lead investigator on the case in Snohomish, Jim Scharf, a patrol cop at the time of the murders, oversaw an initiative to use the DNA collected at the crime scenes for a process called phenotyping by a company called Parabon Nanolabs. According to Parabon's website, quote, DNA phenotyping, 
is the prediction of physical appearance from DNA. It can be used to generate leads in cases where there are no suspects or database hits, to narrow suspect lists, and to help solve human remains cases. DNA carries the genetic instruction set for an individual's physical characteristics, producing the wide range of appearances among people. By determining how genetic information translates into physical appearance, it is possible to reverse-engineer DNA into a physical profile. Snapshot, Parabon's technology, reads tens of thousands of genetic variants, genotypes, from a DNA sample and uses this information to predict what an unknown person looks like. End quote. The company released the snapshots of the person of interest to the sheriff's office. In turn, the sheriff's office released the snapshots depicting the suspect at ages 20, 45, and 65 to the public during a news conference. The killer was most likely Northwestern European in descent with red blonde hair, green or hazel eyes, and a light complexion. Miller then released composite images to the media. It was the spring of 2018 arrest of Joseph D'Angelo, who was accused of being the original California Night Stalker that blew Tanya and Jay's murder case wide open. Instrumental was a woman from Gabriola Island off the B.C. coast named Cece Moore. Cece was among the first to use genetic genealogy on her family members. She began writing about her experiences on a blog called Your Genetic Genealogist in 2010. Her techniques eventually caught the attention of law enforcement, and she has worked on numerous cases, including identifying the suspect in the Golden State Killer case. C.C. Moore assisted law enforcement in finally identifying a suspect in the murders of Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenburg. Moore uploaded DNA from the crime scene to GEDmatch and developed two family trees leading to the suspect, a 55-year-old SeaTac resident named William Earl Talbot II. Talbot lived near the murder scene at the time of the killings. After learning his name, police followed Talbot and collected a paper cup left behind his work truck. The DNA on the cup matched the DNA found on Tanya's pants and one of the zip ties the killer had left behind. Okay, so this GED shared some information. GEDmatch. GEDmatch is sort of open source DNA. Yes. So people send their DNA in freely. Yeah, I know you have trouble with that. We'll talk about that later. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But GEDmatch is an open source, or was at the time, okay. an open source place for people doing genealogical research to search for family. Mm. However, because it's open source, police, with C.C. Moore's help, got into, oh, maybe we can discover the families of people who have committed crimes and then as a result, narrow down to a suspect. Right. Which makes sense if mm. it's open source and everybody is aware of what's going on. But we'll talk about that later mm -hmm. on because that's, this is a whole other uh, ball of wax. On May 18th, 2018, Snohomish County announced the arrest on their website from the release. Quote, Detectives from the Snohomish County and Skagit County Sheriff's Offices arrested a 55-year-old SeaTac Washington man for the November 1987 murder of 20-year-old Jay Cook and 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenburg. William Earl Talbot II was taken into custody without incident at 6 p.m. Thursday, May 17, 2018 in Seattle. He has been booked into the Snohomish County Jail on one count of first-degree murder for the killing of Van Kylenburg on a warrant out of Skagit County.
Detectives continue to gather and process evidence and interview witnesses related to the investigation of Cook's murder. Because of his arrest, detectives are asking for people to come forward with information, specifically anyone who knew Talbot or knew of his activities in 1987 or 88. He would have been 24 years old at the time of the murders. People who saw Talbot associated with the Cook family van in November 1987, see attached photo, or saw Talbot with a 35mm Minolta camera that Tanya had in her possession when she was murdered. The release also mentioned that the camera's lens was recovered and traced to a pawn shop in Portland in 1990, but the camera body is still missing. They were also looking for people who have information about Talbot having access to a light blue blanket or knew where this type of blanket might have come from around the time the crimes were committed. Jay's body was found under that blue blanket. The release continues. Detectives believe Talbot lived in the Woodville area in 1987. His parents' residence was approximately seven miles from where Cook's body was found. We never gave up hope that we would find Jay and Tanya's killer, said Snohomish County Sheriff Ty Trinary. Yesterday's arrest shows how powerful it can be to combine new DNA technology with the relentless determination of detectives, end quote. After his arrest, Talbot refused to answer any questions, requiring the police to do more footwork. He was an enigmatic character, and they had trouble learning anything about him. He had no criminal record to speak of, and although his personality was described as abrasive by some, many who knew him found it hard to believe that he was a murderer. While, though, still others said, oh, he did that? Well, that makes sense. Talbot's palm print, however, matched the one left on the van's back door. A fresh DNA sample also determined he was the person who'd left his DNA behind at the crime scene. His eye color was blue, which went against the phenotyping snapshot, but that didn't matter. His DNA put him at the scene. Talbot's cousin, Chelsea Rustad, linked the DNA and the suspect. She had done a DNA test in 2015 and uploaded her DNA to GEDmatch later. When police knocked on her door in 2018, she was surprised. From the Victoria News website, quote, Rustad pieced together the Talbot branch of her family tree about three years ago as she fleshed out descendants of her great-aunt Blanche. She'd never met Talbot or his sisters. All of his siblings were mentioned by name in about a dozen sources on ancestry, yearbook photos, census records, and so on. William II, it seemed, was the odd man out. He'd left a small footprint in public records, perhaps three mentions. He was off the radar, she said, because he never married or had kids. There was no marriage record or something of that nature, which makes it harder to learn about a person. Rustad befriended Talbot's sisters on social media. They shared family photos, but never anything recent of Talbot. He'd been a person that nobody spoke about, she said. On her doorstep, when detectives mentioned the suspect's name, Rustad thought they were talking about his father, William Talbot Sr. I had no reason to think, oh, maybe they're talking about such and such, because that's not something that has ever happened in my family, a violent crime, let alone murder, she said. She continued, after what the victim's families went through, it's about time they get good luck to come their way. It's a shame they had to wait so long for the technology to catch up, end quote. During Talbot's trial, his defense team suggested that Perhaps his DNA had been on Tanya's pants because they had had consensual sex. She'd been just fine when they'd separated after doing the deed. 
But where was Jay in all this? Talbot's team said, well, maybe somebody else killed him. The jury didn't buy it. Talbot was convicted at trial and sentenced to life behind bars. He appealed, citing juror bias, and in 2021, his conviction was overturned and a new trial was ordered. However, Talbot remained in jail, and in 2022, his conviction was reinstated. Hopefully, the killer, who still maintains his innocence, stays right where he is. I was reading an article that said, quote, Talbot flinched and gasped when the jury read its verdict. Yeah. He literally thought he was going to get off. He did. Yeah. yeah, he was telling friends that he thought that he was going to get off. He was actually shocked. Mm -hmm. And some of the jury members were shaken, not because they thought he was not guilty, mm. but because like, what? why is this guy reacting this way? Right. So, because it was so obvious to them, but not to him that he's going to be. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you want to talk about the use of genetic <laughs> genealogy by authorities. Yeah. So... You know, using it, okay, helped get T Tanya and Jay's killer. It has helped a few cases, yeah. uh, the the most prominent of which is the Golden State killer. Right. Um, that, was, that was the first one that everybody learned about. Like, okay, we've solved a, the, one of the biggest unsolved cases yeah. ever using genetic yeah. genealogy. I just think using it kind... You have to be careful with this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the rush to, hey, we can solve everything, right? Yep. Is there's privacy issues. Yes. Right? So, you know, if a police agency subpoenas a private company someday and you've uploaded DNA mm -hmm. and they're looking at it, right? Yep. That's a privacy issue for me. Um, I think, is it, is it ever a violation of due process with this sort of blanket thing as opposed to being suspected of a specific crime? Mm -hmm. Right? It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I don't have answers, right? I, right. I just have the questions. I have sure. no answers to this. And, um, and a lot of legal experts have the yeah. same questions, yeah. And is there potential for racial profiling? Because as we know, certain populations are overrepresented in DNA databases, Right. How do you know that? Do you have <laughs> fact? Yeah, well, where Pro what's your source? Proportion of black people in the United States in jail. But is that are they all represented in a DNA database? Most likely. That's the CODIS one. That's that's the one that the police use. Mm. That's not these ones. Okay. White people are more are more more likely in these ones. Okay. Yeah. But black people are more likely in the police ones. Correct. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. So we may got to make sure we clarify okay, that. Okay. I'll look into it. Yeah. And I just don't like the idea of government agencies having my DNA. Well, they they don't. If you are a member of a private DNA server service like Twenty Three and Me, or uh, Have, has Twenty Three and Me ever been subpoenaed? Not that I'm aware of. Right. Not that I'm aware of. However. Um, Jedmatch mm. has really struggled with this because of, you know, some people are like, this shouldn't happen. So now there's an opt-in policy right. with the company. If you are okay with your DNA being displayed to police, 
Mm. You have to opt in. It's not just automatic. God, I wouldn't trust that at all. But anyway. Wouldn't trust that at all. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I've never done this DNA thing. Because mm -hmm. I just don't want my, I don't want it out there. And unfortunately, some of my family members have. Yeah. Um, but there you go. So, G, but Jedmatch, as of 2020, um, about 260,000 of their 1.3 million users have opted in. And some people uh, haven't opted in because they're dead. Uh, they haven't opted in because they haven't seen an email from the company. Maybe it fa fell into a, a spam folder. And some haven't opted in because they're not comfortable. So there are some who have opted in. And it has kind of crippled, or it has sort of lessened the use of GEDmatch as a tool for police. But at the same time, yeah, I mean... It seems like they're trying. However, in the fall of uh, 2019, Jedmatch was served with a warrant by law enforcement in Florida demanding access to all of the DNA profiles, including those of vast, the vast majority of users who had not opted in to allow law enforcement access at the time. And... uh so there you go. And that, that's exactly my issue. Yeah. And Jed Match had to comply with the warrant. So the police in America now have every single person on Jed Match's DNA. Yeah, they do. Well, the, yeah, the Florida police. Which, and then that, that goes into their system and it bashes all around America. So it's completely useless. This is why I would never do it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Even if it would solve a crime. Nope. There you go. I would. And I have. There you go. Yep. So anyway, it is what it is. Everybody's got their opinion on it. And I'm sure we'll have other people talking about this. Uh, yeah. Hopefully. If, if anyone's had any experience with this. Yeah. Call in. Definitely. Yeah, definitely call in or talk to us about it in our Facebook group, The Yumber Yard. Don't call in and say that I'm your daddy because I've never put my DNA in a database. <laughs> and I'm nobody's daddy either. <laughs> I'm 100% certain I am not. You're my daddy. You're, you're my podcast daddy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my level of comfort is gone. Mike's wearing a hug dealer Care Bear t-shirt. I am. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, it's a ripoff of the Care Bears, but it has hug dealer. It's on very it. cute. It is very cute. I like it a lot. Actually, I think it is uh, actually... Um, Properly licensed. Ooh, licensed. Licensed Care Bears. I love my Care Bears. They were fun. I like the Care Bears show. I've, I've never seen it. Well, I saw it high. Anyway. Uh. anyway. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All righty, here is our first voicemail. Let's take a listen. Hey, Mike and uh, Matthew, it's Trish from Connecticut. I'm going to be in Vancouver next Wednesday, May 3rd for a night before I go over to see the friends in Victoria. I plan to hit up the police museum. I'm going to see all the cases you two have done. 
and uh should be fun and taking the float plane over to Victoria is always fun. So uh it's been five years. Woo. And uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the coin I sent you. Take care, you two. Bye. Wow. So there we have it. So someone admitting that they're the person who sent me the Canada silver, Canadian silver dollar with the soldier storming the beach, the Juno beach on D-Day. That was very nice. It was very nice. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot. I hope you have a good time here, Trish. Yeah. Yes, those float planes are fun. I have not ever taken You've float never plane. taken one of them? No, They're I so really... They're so great. Taking off and landing on the water is so much fun. I want to do it. Maybe we should do it the next time we go <laughs> to yeah. Victoria. Yeah. That could be fun. Let's do it. Um, But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that thoughtful gift. It was... Uh, it meant a lot. Anyway... Thank you. So what, what does Trish do there in Connecticut? Matthew, any thoughts on that? Yes. Okay. Other than being a, a rare coin dealer? I think Trish is head of zombie defense. Well, somebody's got to do it. Right. So she's responsible for leading a team that fight against the undead. Well, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that there is... Yeah. There are people willing to step up and, and she, do that. She does the intel, make sure they can't infiltrate high security areas. You there know. you go. Yeah, she's very good at it because when have we had an undead outbreak lately? It hasn't happened. There you go. That's because of Trish. There you go. Good, <laughs> good stuff. Uh, let's have a listen to uh, another one. We've got two this week. Thank you for your awesome message. I am just reaching out. I've listened to you guys for about the last year now and love it. Um, what I'm trying to do now is try to bring some light to a cold case of um, Delaney Gudrian. She died. It's investigated as a homicide. Still no use to you know, who killed her and what did what and how did what, but I want to keep it in the spotlight. Um, if you guys want any more information on that, happened in Edmonton around um, 1982. Um, give me a call and uh, I'd like to air it on the show and just uh, bring it up to light and hopefully we can find something for the family. Thank you very much. Have a great day and go take a shade in your hat. I am not familiar with that case. Neither am I. So, yeah, by all means, email the show at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com with all the information that you have, including uh, the spelling of uh, her last name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we'll, take see, a look. we'll take a look and see what we can do because, yeah, we're always up for that kind of thing. And uh, especially if somebody has a connection to a case. So, yes, please. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Well, it's time for Patreon and Donut Money donor shout-outs. First up, we have Megan O'Quinn. 
Megan O'Quinn. Megan O'Quinn. And I don't know where Megan's from, Matthew. That's up to you to figure that out. Put on your geography hat. She's from Shaughnessy. Shaughnessy? Oh, in Vancouver. The Vancouver, the very high end. Yeah. Uh, Vancouver neighborhood with all the mansions, etc. Yeah. And uh, wow. So what does Megan do except sit on a big pile of money? She is the vice president of procrastination. Oh, there you go. <laughs> she, only the vice president. She's responsible for creating a culture of delay within the company that she works for. Oh, that's kind of interesting. And she promotes procrastination uh, as a means of increasing creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. And um, she has a, a very good ability to prioritize unimportant tasks. <laughs> to prioritize unimportant tasks. That's really funny. She makes some good dough with it living in Shaughnessy. I bet. <laughs> so uh, our next patron, the, the username is Corey. Use this name. Okay. C-O-R-R-I-E. I, Corey, use this name. It's Corey, use this name. So, <laughs> so what does Corey, where does Corey use this name live? So we're not sure uh, what gender this person is. So where do they live, Matthew? San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, are they into rice aroni? The San Francisco treat. jeez. Oh, because <laughs> I quite like rice aroni, but anyway. I've never had it. It's, it's, it's a wonderful garbagey treat. Okay. Uh, with, you know, put a little bit of, of chicken in there, like a chicken breast. Okay. Yum, yum. It's, it's yellow. <laughs> rice a -roni. Yes. Rice a phony is what it should be called. <laughs> anyway, so Corey lives in San Francisco okay. and what do they do there in San Francisco? Director of Awkward Conversations. Oh, well. That is probably a good thing. Responsible for navigating uncomfortable interactions in the workplace. Oh, very nice. Corey has excellent communication skills. Yep. With the ability to diffuse tense situations. Tense? Like as in? T-E-N-S-E. Oh, I was going to say it's tense situations. No. And uh, <laughs> Corey has empathy, diplomacy, and importantly, a sense of humor. Well, that's good. <laughs> I've worked on these ones. Yes, you have. <laughs> uh, our third patron is Donovan McCartney. And I'm kind of hoping that it's a relative of uh, a certain beetle. But, okay. Uh, where is Donovan McCartney from? Because Donovan doesn't give us uh, an well, address. Where is that beetle from? Liverpool. That's where Donovan's from. Oh, Liverpool, England. Yeah. Well, there you go. What are, what, I'm from Liverpool. What are the odds? Sometimes I play the fool. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so what does Donovan McCartney do there? Don Donovan's a master of disguise. A master of disguise. Yeah, skilled at going unnoticed. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so how do you know when Donovan's around? You kind of don't. And that's the genius. That's the genius of the, what Donovan does. Exactly. Donovan could be here right now, and we wouldn't know. Well, this is a pretty small room, I'm pretty Donovan sure. Donovan could be you or me. Uh, yeah. Are you Donovan? Okay, let's be honest. Are you Donovan McCartney? No, are you? Maybe. <laughs>
Anyway, thank you, Donovan. Thanks, Donovan. We really appreciate that. We do. Um, but yeah, so it uh, looks like we don't have any Donut Money donors this week, but that's cool. People do send it. Next week. Next week. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this episode. Until next time. If I can say the words correctly, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Buy all your cute pomegranates. Little pomegranate seeds. <laughs> <laughs>